Let's pray together. Our gracious, loving Father, we thank you uh, for your word, the word of God revealed to us in the scriptures, given to us down through the ages to which we are called to remain faithful. May your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your Son's greater glory may it always be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Today in our church's calendar, it's the Sunday after the Ascension, that portion of the church's year when we remember the Ascension of Jesus after the resurrection, gathering of his disciples, ascending into heaven. And our gospel text, which was read to us by Steve, places us from John 17 in very holy ground. This is the evening before the crucifixion. Jesus and those with him are in the upper room. And from John's chapter 13 through 16, we have this incredible conversation around a table between Jesus and his disciples. And he prays the most thrilling prayer ever prayed. Philip Melanchthon, the great reformer, lectured on John chapter 17 in the last lecture he ever gave. And these were his words. This is what he said. There is no voice which has ever been heard, neither in heaven or in earth or exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself here in our passage today in John chapter 17. We have a prayer. And this prayer is remarkable because of who is praying it. And since about the 5th century, the church has called this prayer the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So let's think about the high priest for a moment and why it might be called that. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would be in prayer for himself and his fellow priests and for the whole covenant community of God. Here in John chapter 17, Jesus, our high priest, was in the upper room in prayer for himself, for his disciples, and for the whole church down through the ages. This is why we call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It is the same Jesus, our great high priest, who ever lives to make intercession, prayer for us. We see that in Hebrews chapter 7. And it reminds us, of what Jesus is praying for. So often people say, if only we could know something of the prayer life of Jesus, if only we could hear, if only we could listen in. Well, in John chapter 17, Jesus allows us to do that. So if you have access to your Bibles this morning, why don't you open them to our gospel passage so we can look at the Word of God together? Because we have an opportunity this morning to listen in to the very heartbeat of Jesus in the only long prayer of Jesus that we actually have in the whole of the Bible. And Jesus prays this prayer so that the disciples who were with him and we today, you and me this morning, can listen to what he prays and how he prays it. This should be as gold to us. It's a privilege, and we're listening in to the prayer of Jesus, our high priest. And it divides naturally into three sections. Firstly, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. And it's a prayer we'll see in a moment for glory. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. It's very much a prayer about security. 
And then in the latter passage, we won't spend much time on that at the end of the prayer. I will mention it, though. Jesus prays for his church, and it's very much a prayer for unity. It took Thomas Manton, the 17th century English clergyman, 45 sermons to deal with this one chapter. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the minister of Westminster Chapel in London, preached 48 sermons on this chapter alone. So in the time available to me this morning, you'll understand if I only give you some of the headlines. Let's look in verses 1 to 5, and we'll go to the Word of God. Jesus prays for himself, a prayer for glory. Look or listen with me in your Bibles, verse 1 of John 17. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And then in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. In some respects, these words feel almost a little shocking and self-indulgent to us. Is this the prayer of someone who's become a little too focused on their own importance, asking that glory may come to him? Well, surely no, and we, we miss the point if we think that. Look more closely there in the end of verse 1. See where this prayer is directed. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Do you see that? Then again in verse 5, this is a prayer for the restoration of a glory that Christ had with the Father before the world began. What a claim this is about Jesus. Restore that. Bring glory back together. You'll remember in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, it will be all to the glory of God the Father. That's how this works. How was the Son to glorify the Father in this hour? Well, the answer again here seems to be threefold in these next three verses. Look with me, verse 2. He would glorify the Father by giving eternal life. Do you notice that? To all those whom the Father had given. And what is eternal life? Jesus prays in verse 3. The answer, eternal life is nothing less than knowing God himself. And there is nothing greater for any human being than that, surely. Knowing God himself transforms a person, and it introduces them to a life that they could never otherwise know or experience. Get to know Jesus, this Jesus of John 17, John's Gospel says, and you get to know the Father. It is as big as that. In fact, it, it doesn't get any bigger than that. There's a lot of giving going on in this remarkable chapter. Seventeen times, in one form or another, the word giving or given appears in this chapter. And that's worth considering. When my mother repeated something to me when I was a boy, she was endeavoring to make a point. Seventeen times here Jesus prays about giving or given. It's incredible. On seven of those occasions, the Lord's words speak of Christians as love gifts from the Father to the Son. I wonder if you've ever seen that. Did you spot that as Steve was reading it to us earlier? Have you ever reflected on your Christian life as a love gift from the Father being given to the Son? 
Have you ever thought that you are a Christian disciple at all because God the Father has chosen you to give you to His Son as a gift of love? That whole purpose of saving you, of drawing you into the family of Christ, of giving you eternal life is simply so that the Father may express His love to the Son. It's incredible. We so often think of Jesus as God's gift to us. But do we ever consider ourselves as God's gift to Jesus? So that's the first thing that's going to happen. Jesus is going to give eternal life. And what is it? Jesus prays it there. Verse 3, eternal life is that we may know you, the living God and Christ whom you have sent. Yes. And he gives us as love gifts from the Father to the Son. Secondly, look with me in verse 4. Jesus prays that he would be glorified on the cross, not only by providing this eternal life, but by perfect obedience to God, the Father. Again, look in verse 4. Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Jesus can say to the Father with complete sincerity and utter transparency, I did everything you asked me to do. He did everything the Father required, and now that obedience is to be sealed by this final act of commitment and dedication in his substitutionary death. You see, the cross, the Good Friday cross, is, is not an isolated event. It's, it is the culmination of all the work Jesus came into the world to do. And that is why Christians love that little phrase, on the lips of Jesus from the cross, it is finished. What a wonderful phrase that is. A wonderful phrase for sinful people because it speaks peace to us. It announces the foundation of our salvation, our redemption, and our restoration to God. It's the glory of the gospel, the glory of the cross. And as Calvin puts it, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world in the cross. And Jesus accomplishes the work the Father has given him to do. Thirdly, look with me, verse 5. And now, Father, praise Jesus, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus' rescue mission cost him so much. It cost him his rightful place in God's glorious heavenly presence. And here in verse 5, Jesus anticipates that glorious reunion with the Father, the resurrection and the ascension, which we've considered this week, which follow the cross, are about to make that reunion good again. So Jesus' first prayer, the Father's glory is his deepest concern. Glorify me by letting me give the disciples of all ages the eternal life that you, Father, have purposed for them. Just think that through with me before we move on. If this had not happened, if there, is no, if there had not been Good Friday, there would be no salvation. There would be no Holy Spirit given. There'd be no New Testament. There'd be no church. There would be no Christian life today. So Jesus prays for glory. But it's not a selfish prayer. It's a prayer 
for the restoration of a glory that Christ had with the Father before the world began. Look with me now in verses 6 through 9, 19, as Jesus prays for his disciples. Because the primary focus, surely, yes, is the group of apostles that gathered there that night in the upper room with Jesus. Yes, I get that. They had heard the name of God revealed, verse 6. They had heard Jesus speak the very word of God, verse 8. They had believed, again, verse 8. They obeyed, verse 6. None of them had been lost, verse 12, except Judas. And, and, and Judas is a reminder, if, if ever one was needed, that if you can, be close, you can be close to Christ and you can be close to Christian things, you can even be in the church, in the inner circle, and yet not be in Christ. Judas reminds us that. What Jesus prays for with those with him in the upper room is also applicable to us if we are Christ's today. Because we dare to believe, verse 6, that we too have been called with them out of the world. That little phrase in John's gospel, the world, refers to everything and everyone who is fundamentally against God. That is the way the phrase is used throughout John's gospel. Again, there seems to be perhaps three questions to answer arising in this section from our text. They're not all original to me, but here I want to bring some of them to you. Firstly, who does Jesus pray for? Secondly, why does he pray? And thirdly, what does he pray? I want to take just a minute or two on each of these points. The subject of his prayer, the reasons for his prayer, the requests of his prayer. And remember, remember as we look at this, this is the Son of God praying for His church. So firstly, look, who does He pray for? Verses 6 to 9. Well, yes, He prays for those in the upper room, but beyond them to include others. Look, verse 9. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So here Jesus is using the unmistakable language of choice and election. And I want you to see as profoundly moving this is because it says to the struggling, anxious, fearful believers, worried about what the future holds, that through the world, uh, that, that, that though the world may despise you and Satan may attack you, and of your own conscience you may from time to time accuse yourself. God treasures you. He treasures you enough to have given you as a love gift to his son. I hope you see that as reassuring. What does that do for Christian confidence? What does that do for your self-esteem? What does that do for inner security? A love gift chosen by the Father, known by name, given to the Son, received by the Son, kept by the Son, redeemed by the Son, never lost and raised by the Son to glory. Isn't this good news? Well, if that's you this morning, then you are the personal property of the Trinity. And isn't that a great thought? We are the personal property and treasured by the eternal God. What a privilege this is. And Jesus is praying this way in John 17. Look, secondly, why is Jesus saying all of this to the Father? What's the reason for his prayer? 
verses 9 through 11. Will you look there? I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. What a remark at the end of verse 10 about the church. It's extraordinary, is it not? Jesus is praying for the disciples because they are the Father's love gifts to him. They are supremely valuable. They originally belonged to the Father. The Father chose them. He gave them to the Son. And now they are Christ. We are so secure in God here. No need for insecurity with Christ. Second verse 10 and 11 Here's a prayer for the disciples, those with Jesus in the upper room and, and all of us today. A prayer that they and we will continue to radiate Christ's glory even when he is not here. And the Lord prays that we will manifest his glory in the church as the redeemed and spirit-led people of God. That's our calling. And that what, that's what makes Christ so attractive to the world as he radiates through us. Thirdly, why does he pray? Look in verses 11 to 19. This is very interesting. There is no doubt that the departure of Jesus from the earth was going to create a challenging season for the disciples. There was a crisis for many of them. We know that from what follows in the Bible. And so Jesus prays here for at least four things for them. And I suggest for us, and this is super important stuff here. Firstly, look with me. He prays that they may be protected. I want you to remember that word. Verses 11, 12, and 15. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Someone is supposed to have asked the banker J.P. Morgan at one time, what is the best collateral a person can give for a loan? And Morgan thought for a moment and replied, Character. It's character. You see, God's character is the best collateral we can have, ever have, for our salvation and our security in Christ. I hope we believe that. Here, Jesus the Son asks the Holy Father to keep the disciples in a very unholy world. And boy, don't we need that today. The world is one dangerous place, and we need protection from the evil one, verse 15. How often it would seem that Satan himself is behind all the hatred and opposition of the world. He is behind the antagonism behind the opposition, behind the attempts to derail Christians in everyday life, behind all these things, according to this passage, lies the evil one. And if you're not convinced that Satan actually exists, you would do well to listen to the prayer of Jesus because Jesus is convinced that Satan exists. And that's good enough for me. I hope for you too. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. Jesus makes no mistake about that. In everyday life, it is probably the evil one who distracts you and me from praying and reading the Bible, 
who keeps us from worship and fellowship, who whispers that relationships and service in the church do not actually matter. It is probably Satan who takes personality conflicts and little irritations and preferences and magnifies them into factions and disputes. It is probably Satan who does all he can to derail the people of God. Yes, we rightly pray about many things in our lives, many practicalities, but we would all do well to remember the need to pray as Jesus prayed against the works of the evil one. Jesus prays for protection. Secondly, he prays that Christian disciples would be united. So protection is the first thing. Unity is the next. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Unity amongst Christians always seems to be out of our grasp. Have you noticed that? Perhaps that's why Jesus prays in this matter and in this manner. If you look around even here at Redeemer, at this congregation, you might conclude we have very little in common. Racial and social mixtures, backgrounds and intellects, mixed bags of character and hang-ups and even accents like Ian's, not like mine, of course. An ocean of likes and dislikes. And yet, and yet, brothers and sisters, if we are His, if we are Christ's disciples, all those distinctions count for nothing against the realities that we share with every single Christian across the world. And what is it we share? What we share is immeasurably greater than all that differentiates us. In the light of what we share, it is simply not logical that we should live with any form of disunity. Paul would later write to the Ephesians of the seven foundations that unite Christians here at Redeemer with every other Christian who names the name of Christ around the world. Shall I tell you what they are? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. That's it. This is what unites us. Not so much what we do or what other people might think about us or what we even want them to think about us. What unites us? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And so Jesus prays for protection. He prays that Christian disciples would be one with the same unity that he and the Father have. Thirdly, and there's a surprise here very quickly, Jesus prays that they may be delighted. Look, verse 13. But now I am coming to you, he prays. And these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus prays that Christian people may be delighted. Literally, he says, the joy that is mine. Do you know that joy? Do I know it? I'm often so burdened when I see Christians with the Atlas syndrome. Do you know what that is? the weight of the world upon their shoulders. 
No, Jesus says, I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled. It was, it was the book of Nehemiah where we read that the joy of the Lord in the midst of all those challenges that faced Nehemiah and those with him, rebuilding Jerusalem, may the joy of the Lord be their strength. A joy which C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, the joy of the Lord which C.S. Lewis wrote about using his lovely phrase, will be the serious business of heaven. That's the joy of which Jesus prays, and I suspect he is praying that for us today. As we worship at Redeemer this morning, he prays that the disciples will be protected, united, delighted, and finally, he prays that they may be distinctive. Look in verses 16 through 19 just at the very end of the passage that Steve read to us. Notice that Jesus does not pray for the world. That's interesting, isn't it? He loved the world. John tells us that earlier. But he doesn't pray for the world here, verse 9. And he does not pray for the disciples to be taken out of the world, verse 15. That would have seemed to be easier if he had prayed that. But he does pray for the disciples, surely those then with him, and we today, to be distinctive distinctive. That is the reality, surely, of what being sanctified means. Verse 17, verse 19, sanctify, consecrate, sanctify them in truth. Where do we find this truth? Well, we find it in the scriptures, in the Bible. We read it and mark it and learn it and smell it. Your word is truth, said Jesus, and as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For the, for, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. That's why we've got to get into the Bible. In contact with the world, but not contaminated by it. That's a challenge for us. Concern for the world, and yet not conformed to it. It's our fellow brother in Christ, an Anglican Os Guinness, who puts it so well when he says, in terms of influence, the problem is not that most Christians aren't where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be where they are. Being sanctified in truth is being given a biblical mind, a scriptural lens through which to see and evaluate culture, the world in which we live, the world of work, of politics, of the arts, the internet, of everything that makes society tick. Lord, give us that lens. And look in verse 18 as I close. As you sent me into the world, Jesus prays, so I have sent them into the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And why has he sent us into the world to be disciples and make disciples? That is what we are. And that is what we are still to do. To be in the world, sent by Christ, there for Christ, telling and showing the world about Christ and rehearsing the gospel day after day after day. Be the love gift to Christ that the Father called you to be. Let's pray. Lord, help us to rest our hearts.
in the confidence of this great prayer of Jesus. Help us to see our lives as the Father's gift to the Son and the Son handing back our lives to the glory of the Father. Lord, we thank you that we are caught up into the life of the Trinity in this prayer. Help us never to misunderstand or to underestimate the beauty of that. And then, Heavenly Father, as Jesus prayed and we dare believe, still prays, make us a protected people, a united people, a delighted people, and a distinctive people. Convince us of our status then, Lord, and give us all we need to be your people in the world, furthering your mission, even this very day, to your glory, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.